You're listening to the Smart Arts Podcast, presented by Richard Watts. You can listen to Smart Arts every Thursday morning from 9am to 12pm here on Triple R. Good morning, Richard Watts with you here, taking you through till midday today with another edition of Smart Arts. And it's going to be an action-packed show today. Uh, There's a range of festivals coming up which we're going to chat about, including the Melbourne Festival of Puppetry. Uh, We're also going to catch up with the Artistic Director of Brisbane Festival, David Bertolt, who launched his debut program as Festival Director for Brisbane Festival just last week. Uh, It is that time of year when... Quite a few interstate festivals are launching their programs. And given that the art sector is um, an interconnected ecology around the country, yes, I'm based here in Melbourne, and uh, I'm sure three-quarters of you, the listeners, are in Melbourne as well. But it's nice to know what's going on interstate and how the ecology feeds into itself and fits together nationally. So, yeah, we're going to find out about Brisbane Festival uh, in about 15 minutes' time. And speaking of a national art ecology, at 945 we're going to talk to Norm Horton from Feral Arts about the National Day of Action for the Arts. There's a big sector gathering up in Sydney. There's a campaign underway to encourage artists and arts organisations to submit feedback for a Senate inquiry into damaging, not cuts officially, but damaging reallocation of money from the Australia Council to a brand new so-called slush fund uh, set up by Senator George Brandis, the Minister for the Arts federally. Uh, So we're going to find out all about about that at 9.45 today. Plus, if you're a parent and you're looking for something creative for the kids to do during school holidays, Polyglot Theatre's boats at Federation Square might be something that you want to keep an eye on. Uh, We're going to be chatting with Lachlan McLeod about boats at 9.30. Plus, uh, on the theatre front, Made in China is a production being presented by TBC Theatre in Richmond. Uh, It's been pitched to me as an Irish kung fu drama comedy. So uh, looking forward to finding out a little bit more about that. Plus, uh, the Melbourne Festival of Puppetry is happening, presented by La Mama Theatre and Lemony S Puppet Theatre. That's uh, running from the 7th to the 12th of July. So uh, Sarah Kriegler is going to join us to talk about the Melbourne Festival of Puppetry. Another festival, the Melbourne Magic Festival, is happening. So we're going to find out all about that a little bit later this morning as well. Plus, our Dancing on the Radio segment is happening this week. And it's been a while since we had a Shoot the Messenger segment. So I I've been casting around to see who might be uh, able to come in and critique some theatre for us. Fleur Kilpatrick is going to join us at 10.15 to review a couple of theatre productions that are on at the moment and maybe preview something else that is coming up. Also, uh, speaking of coming up, Letters Home and Salt Water, two works uh, on at Theatre Works in St Kilda by Singaporean-Australian playwrights. Uh, and those playwrights, uh, Jamie Lewis and Joe Louis, are going to join us today at 10.45. All that and more on the show this morning. Hope you can stick around. As I said, it's going to be an action-packed three hours.
Richard Watts with you here on Smart Arts here on Triple R, taking you through until midday today. As I mentioned at the start of the program, we're chatting about a few different festivals today, amongst other things. The Melbourne Magic Festival, uh, we'll be chatting about that coming up on the show a little bit later, and the Melbourne Festival of Puppetry. But also, as I said, the arts is an interconnected ecology. Artists from around the country are constantly collaborating, visiting each other's cities, presenting work. So I'm sure there's plenty of people in Melbourne who will be intrigued to know what's happening at the Brisbane Festival this year. Its artistic director, David Berthold, joins us on the line now. David, good morning. Good morning, Richard. Now, people in the sector will know you more as a theatre director and artistic director of a theatre company or two. You've just now recently made the transition uh, to being a festival director. What kind of insights into programming uh, has your background in theatre given you uh, to present a, a broad program at a festival? Well, theatre is the magpie of the arts, in a way, like you know, any any theatre show I've ever directed has involved a, a composer, a, you know, a designer, quite often a choreographer. So you, you're very regularly working across all the art forms. So, but what I found fantastic, actually, personally, is 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 having to get up to speed with uh, you know the very newest contemporary dance from around the world or contemporary music, whatever it might be. So I, thought, I found that exhilarating. Now, you just mentioned that phrase magpie. Now, magpies are certainly overseas are renowned for, well, shall we, let's not say stealing things, but let's say uh, borrowing things. It's sometimes mm-hmm. traditional for festival directors to borrow works from other festivals, to essentially cherry-pick the best uh, or most intriguing of what's on at the range of arts festivals internationally and present it in their programs. You've done something rather different. You've very much focused on... Um, some political themes connecting works and you're very much focused on works from in particular two different countries uh, from uh, from Africa in the Congo and also from Singapore rather than for example having a program dominated by work from, from the low countries of Europe which seems to be a tradition in many festivals. Why this particular approach of yours to programming? Well I always knew from the beginning that I wanted to program in little clusters of work you know not not an overarching theme for the festival not, not at all but but works collected around tent poles if you like and i didn't know what those you know ideas or tent poles might be but quite organically uh, the Congo emerged as an interesting thing for me. Uh, you know, at the theatre company I used to run La Boite here in Brisbane, we began work with a young uh, Congolese Australian on a play. So I, I began, I knew a little about that. And then um, when I was on an overseas trip last year, I came across a work called Coup Fatal from the Congo. And I thought, oh, and then the connection started to be made for me. Then I went out actively seeking uh, other work about the Democratic Republic of the Congo and actually reading much more about it and the more I read about the history of that nation the more I was <laughs> I was just floored by the, the things I didn't know you know the West has a blind spot generally about Africa but particularly about the Congo and and you know I guess I'm hoping that the eye-opening experience I had in learning more about the Congo and, and looking at the works that I've collected, I just hope that that'll um, you know transfer to the audience really. And much the same thing happened with Singapore. Um, I was 
was in Singapore and started to learn more about the country than I than I knew about, and it's it's politics and culture, and of course it's its 50th anniversary of independence this year, which gave another little hook for it. And you know, Australia was the first country to recognise, you know, to open diplomatic relations with Singapore back in 1965, and uh, Tony Abbott just had an orchid named after him just a couple of days ago. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there we go. Now, um, in terms of Singapore, one of the works that you're bringing out is not necessarily a work that people would think is in any way quintessentially Singaporean. It's Oscar Wilde's The Importance of Being Earnest, uh, which is a very, very well-known work, but uh, presented in a rather unique way by Singapore company Wild Wild Rice is one of the more prominent theatre companies in uh, Singapore, and this is an all-male production, um, but n- not in drag. You know, if anyone who saw the Melbourne Theatre Company's you know production of Imports Being Earnest a while back with Geoffrey Rush playing Lady Bracknell in drag, but this is not drag. These men are all in suits, so it's kind of quite gen genuinely uh, an all-male production. Um, and in Singapore, it has quite a resonance because that the very law under which Oscar Wilde was jailed back in 1895, you know, tried and jailed famously, that law uh, still exists in Singapore. So, uh, you know, inherited colonially, you know, so homosexuality is still illegal in Singapore. So, uh, and the company of actors actually will be, will be presenting a free reading of, of uh, Moises Kaufman's play, The Three Tri- uh, Gross Indecency, The Three Trials of Oscar Wilde, uh, to, to point to that. So it has particular political potency, I think, in Singapore. Now, one of the things that interests me about Brisbane Festival is that for Australia's international arts festivals, uh, I think I'm right in that that Brisbane is the youngest of those festivals, uh, unlike Perth, which is the oldest, uh, which is, I think, 60 years old now. Um, So does that mean that Brisbane Festival is also then somehow more malleable because it is younger and it means it's easier to remake and remould with each new program or each new artistic director, perhaps? I've certainly found that. I haven't felt uh, the weight of history in that sense. So I haven't felt any restrictions about the sorts of things that I might program or how I might reshape the festival at all. And Brisbane, of course, is is actually a very young city. You know, when I moved here a little while ago, I immediately felt its youthfulness. And, uh, and And I think... You know, the, the population here is actually quite up for uh, something different, you know, in terms of an arts festival or whatever it might be. So I, I've been quite exhilarated by that and, and certainly not felt, you know, weighed down by history in that way. One of the elements of the Brisbane Festival program, which has certainly intrigued me over the last few years, is the Theatre Republic program, which is essentially a, a festival within a festival of independent arts. Now, you cut your teeth with Brisbane Festival programming Theatre Republic for a couple of years. Hmm. Uh, 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 since, as we've said, moved on to be the artistic director of Brisbane Festival as a whole. How important for you, nonetheless, is that kind of program within a program of Theatre Republic, which presents the best of independent theatre from Australia and indeed some international work as well? Yeah, I, I was pleased to be asked to uh, curate that a couple of years ago. And, you know, we all know, you know, particularly in Melbourne, you know, but, but all the way through Australia, how the independent art scene is 
been the focus of so much conversation in all sorts of ways uh, uh, in Australia, and and so much of the of the best newest work emerges naturally from that area of activity, and it, it felt important for us to group quite a bit of that work together, so that you know the work of Queensland independent artists and groups and so on in theatre, you know, to to have their shows side by side. Quite a lot from Melbourne, I must say. I think it was almost Melbourne independent theatre scene in exile in the, my first Theatre Republic season back in 2013. And um, and it was great having, you know, those companies around. And, and, and also, as you say, mixing it with some international theatre as well. Now, for Melburnians who may be planning a, a trip north to uh, to escape the uh, the chill of early spring, uh, then Brisbane Festival is certainly somewhere where they should think about going. Uh, running from the 5th until the 26th of September, and you can find out more details about the program at www.brisbanefestival.com.au. And, David, I guess just to wrap up, obviously there's a range of free events presented every year because it is important for a festival to, to be a gateway to the arts perhaps, a, a gateway drug. Somebody might see a, uh, a free show uh, at the festival, get hooked, and then decide to, to book tickets to see something else. One of the other things that festivals do, as well as being an, an introduction to the arts for many people in the city, is also to present new art forms that we haven't seen before, or old art forms in new ways. So I wanted to wrap up by talking to you about Flexen, which is a new dance work, and a political dance work from the USA, that is indeed a new dance style. Tell us more. This is hot off the shelf. Um, this is a, a, what is genuinely a, a new dance form called Flex, which has emerged just in the eight, last eight or ten years from the streets of Brooklyn uh, amongst the African-American community. This piece um, uh, premiered about uh, three months ago, which I saw in New York uh, and has been done nowhere else in Australia, and so I immediately wanted it here in Brisbane. Um, it was created around the time of uh, Michael Brown's death in Ferguson and the riots that ensued after that and, you know, police shootings of unarmed African-Americans in America has been, you know, a story that's simply not going away. And uh, this work is infused by that and uh, it involves uh, also... The, the work of probably America's greatest theatre director, Peter Sellers, um, uh, who's, who's put it together uh, with uh, 15 African-American uh, dancers who are the very pioneers of Flex. And uh, it's certainly unlike any other dance I've seen before, a very narrative form of dance and completely mesmerising. So I was, I was thrilled that we were able to get it exclusively to Brisbane. So I'm um, really happy about that. Well, if people want to see this brand new dance style, then you better start booking tickets for the Brisbane Festival, running, as I said, from the 5th until the 26th of September. The full program is online at brisbanefestival.com.au. We've been talking to the festival's artistic director, David Bertolt. David, thank you very much for joining us this morning. Brilliant. Thanks, Richard.
Now, uh, it is, uh, I believe, as of today, the start of school holidays, which means parents across Melbourne are going to be looking for something for their kids to do. If you have creative kids, then uh, there's a couple of things that I can recommend, but one of them is a new work by Melbourne company Polyglot Theatre, who put kids at the heart of their arts and make these immersive, playful works that the kids almost get to direct themselves. Um, One of the new works from Polyglot, uh, in fact, the latest work, having its premiere in Federation Square, is Boats. And uh, joining us to tell us a little bit more is actor, singer, performer, Lachlan McLeod. Lachlan, how are you going? I'm going great. How are you? I'm very well. Very well indeed. Thank you. Good, good. So uh, you've been involved with Polyglot as an artist for quite a while. Yeah, you're starting to make me feel old now. <laughs> uh, yeah, probably. I think I've been there maybe seven years, maybe. The years tick on by. Yeah. Keeps you young, though. I think working for Polyglot, being surrounded by children. And surrounded by artists who really want to make work that engages children, not yeah. just work that the kids sit back and watch and have no kind of activity in, but making work that really involves the kids intimately. Yeah, that's right. And I think that's kind of the heart of Polyglot's ethos is really creating art with children uh, that is then for children and that children uh, in experiencing the the artwork they create uh, the art as well so so boats is the new work which again as with the polyglot uh, ethos is very very interactive and very hands-on and is inspired i understand by fishing boats from java yeah that's the sort of visual aesthetic uh, that we've kind of drawn on sue our artistic director and a team went over to java uh, to do some workshops there with uh, Paper Moon Puppet Theatre, which we've had a relationship with for a couple of years. Um, and, yeah, one of the, the things that she kind of came back with was these, these beautiful images of Indonesian fishing boats, which have these great colours. Uh, so that's kind of what we based the, the visual aesthetic of boats around. And what about the, the work itself? Because, I mean, kids like playing with stuff. So is this mm. literally a, just a chance to expand kids' imaginations, to give them a boat and get them to, to float about sail, Federation Sail school? off and then discover new lands. Yeah, it is in a way. Um, yeah, it's kind of it's 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 about a few things. It's sort of you know boats yeah, is, is such a sort of loaded concept, especially sort of politically at the moment. Um, you know, boats mean immigration, boats mean refugees, boats mean colonial invasion. You know, it's boats a, mean fear. Boats mean fear. According fear, fear. To, according to our glorious leader. That's yeah. right. So it's it's a very kind of loaded concept especially for for adults but um this sort of project aims to sort of show that kids have an entirely different perspective on things you know to kids boats don't really mean any of that boats mean adventure boats mean discovery you know um so it's kind of showing that the different sort of perspective that children have to it's what adults might have and i like the idea of kids being able to navigate around Fed Square, like literally to sail around Federation Square with their own boat. They can be the crew, they Mm. can be the captain, they can discover strange islands populated by magical people as they go. So it it really is this um, act of embodying imagination. Yeah, that's right. And it's kind of, well, well, I mean, Boats was commissioned by Fed Square and one of the big sort of aims of this project is to... to, uh, 
reimagine how the public engages with public space. So it's taking that sort of undulating cobblestone um, slab that is Fed Square and turning it into an, an urban sort of seascape and that then, you know, people have to interact with. So even, you know, people who might not be uh, taking part in boats, they'll just be walking through Fed Square and a, a boatload full of children will come and say, hey, what are you doing? You're in the water. Come on, quick, get in the boat, get in the boat. So, so even the sort of passive public will be kind of drawn into engaging, you know, with that space in a new way. And which for adults could be a... I mean, I'm sure some adults will just be quite stiff and nervous and go, no, 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 I'm not getting involved. Yeah. Where other people will just be able, maybe able to rekindle and recapture their own childlike imagination and jump in and yeah, get involved. exactly. And that's that's the whole point. It's just, you know, sparking bits of imagination just going from there and seeing where it takes you. It sounds rather magical. It is. Yeah. It will be. So if uh, people want to know more about boats and how to get involved then obviously you can go to fedsquare.com uh, and under the event section you'll find boats by polyglot and uh, and can check out more but there's a couple of other levels and layers to it, isn't there? Because I know children can make their own boats. Yeah, so we've got... Um, we'll be kind of... The, the real kind of interactive play space area will be the, the large sort of cobblestone um, area. But we've also got in the atrium space, we've got um, making of boats. So we've got um, stations set up to make origami boats and um, various things like that. So hopefully that atrium space will will become kind of a, a sea of, of paper boats over the over the week. For you, as as an artist, Lachlan, how valuable is it working with children in this way? Does it kind of? It must obviously keep you on your toes because you've got to be responsive and engaged, and there's probably no time for for an off day. No, not really. And um, especially, I've got young children at home now. Well, they're only three months old. I've got very three, young children. Very young children. Um, but uh, yeah, it does mean that um, you know when you're not working and there's children around, it's uh, it's almost like you're working as well because it's hard to resist. You know playing with children but yeah it does keep you young and and you know children kind of inform every part of of polyglot's practice um and i think that keeps the the ideas sort of unbounded you know it's kind of the 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 limit there is no limit to children's imagination and i think that as the sort of basis of polyglot's sort of ethos means that there's nowhere we can't go and we're always kind of having new and wonderful ideas and being spurred on by by the kids and i mean to give some examples of other uh, polyglot works, for example, just taking the simple notion of cardboard boxes mm. and building cities out of them, for example. Yeah, or exactly. Another or, another work that um, uh, Fed Square commissioned was Paper Planet, um, where basically we turn a space into a giant cardboard forest, and children come in and they create uh, they create the inhabitants of the forest, and they create costumes for themselves, and they inhabit the the forest themselves. So, yeah, lots of magical magical worlds. Uh, if you are a parent and would like uh, your children to get involved with Polyglot Boats, a new interactive work by Polyglot Theatre at Fed Square during the school holidays, uh, running from Tuesday the 7th of July, uh, so next Tuesday the 7th until Sunday the 12th of July, in the atrium and uh, across the square itself at Fed, at Fed Square from 10am until midday and then again from 2pm till 4pm. It is a free event. It is. Yep. Uh, always a bonus in school holiday time, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, it's the kind of—is it the kind of thing that people should register for, or should you just turn up on the no, day? Just turn up. Yeah. And what ages are we talking about? Who, uh, who is this ideal for? I think ideally, if you can walk, 
I think that that helps because you know you, you have to sort of help pick up the boats and and run along with them. Um, but you know if you if you can't, well, I'm sure we can accommodate you as well. Okay, so uh, crawlers and toddlers and walkers all welcome to That's get involved. Right. Yeah, sounds like fun. So boats at Fed Square presented by Coly- uh, Polyglot, as I said, uh, from Tuesday the seventh until Sunday the twelfth of July uh, in the atrium of the Square at Fed Square from 10 a.m. till midday and then again from 2 p.m. till 4 p.m. Uh, more info at fedsquare.com forward slash events uh, and then just look for boats by polyglot get involved and uh, it sounds like it's going to be great I'm almost tempted to kidnap a child well borrow one borrow one from one of my friends <laughs> Careful. Um, and uh, and come along and check it out for myself Lachlan McLeod thanks for joining us pleasure Nine forty-five. Speaking of love, I suspect there's not a lot of love in the Australian art sector at the moment for Senator George Brandis QC, the Federal Minister for the Arts. As uh, I've mentioned on this show over the last month or so, when the uh, federal budget was handed down this year, there was a shock to the art sector with money reallocated from the Australia Council to what has been described by the Shadow Arts Minister as a slush fund in the Ministry for the Arts. As a result, today is a national day of action for the arts sector. Joining us on the line uh, is Norm Horton, one of the spokespeople and organisers of the Free the Arts campaign. Norm, you're from Feral Arts in Queensland. Queensland's already had experience with uh, drastic cuts to the arts under your previous state government. Why is this an issue for the arts industry and for arts lovers nationally? Hi, Richard. Thanks for the time to, to catch up with everyone. Um, this is a really important time for the arts sector nationally. Uh, the changes that have happened with the federal budget are really significant on a number of levels. One is about the loss of funding to the Australian Council and the loss of its um, capacity to support the arts sector in a, as an independent um, arms-length statutory body. Uh, the, move, the money that's moved from the Australian Council over to the ministry is not under the control of independent peer review and so the decision making process is open to the kind of corruption that's leading to to questions or allegations of being a slush fund for, for Senator Brandis. Now, one of the impacts uh, that this will have is uh, because uh, Senator Brandis has set up his uh, his own uh, national program for excellence in the arts, the money that is required for that, uh, my understanding is uh, it will duplicate already existing services uh, in terms of the administration of that fee. It also means that the money that's been taken from the Australia Council is specifically money that would support works by independent artists and small to medium companies. Is that correct? That's right. The um, the way it works, unfortunately, for the small to medium companies and individual artists is that they're the ones whose allocation of funding is, is being attacked. So the money uh, that goes uh, to the major performing arts companies has been quarantined, so they're not receiving any cuts. And, and in fact, if any of the, uh, those companies are successful in applying to the new fund, they'll be effectively getting increases at the expense of individual artists and small to medium companies. So today has been uh, declared a national day of action for the art sector. Uh, and so what's taking place today? Well, in Sydney, uh, a number of people from across the country are gathering and uh, meeting with other local arts and cultural sector people um, 
to, I guess, really start to look at a future agenda for the arts and cultural sector and um, and plan out how we can work together to deal with some of the major concerns that have come up through this process. I guess what we're seeing is that um, the changes that uh, Minister Brandis has put in place are really symptomatic of a broader problem about chronic underfunding of the arts in Australia. So rather than fixing that problem by getting new money into the budget at the last last federal budget, he's actually just moved money around to give it to the people who he feels he wants to fund or who he thinks needs that money. So we want to get everyone together, including all the major performing arts companies, and to actually deal with the problem, which is fix the, the level of chronic underfunding and grow that so that there's scope for, for supporting all of the, um, the great practice across the country. And I guess also, like in that conversation, we're really aware now that there's been there's, there's a lack of a national advocacy body for the arts and cultural sector broadly. So people are talking about trying to fill that gap and also thinking about um, fixing the, the gap for uh, a national cultural policy. When um, when Senator Randis came into to government, he one of the first things he did was to axe the national cultural policy that had been developed under the previous government and has put nothing in place. So the changes he's making are really operating in a bit of a policy void. So the national sector meeting that's happening in Sydney tonight will be streamed online from 6pm Australian Eastern Standard Time uh, at the Free the Arts Facebook page. So uh, people from the sector who can't attend that meeting can see what's going on. Um, on Twitter, uh, people can use the hashtag Free the Arts and questions and suggestions uh, from online will be fed into that conversation that's taking place. Before that meeting at 6pm, there's also a workshop for people who want to make um, a submission to the Senate inquiry into the arts, which Labor and the Greens have called for. Tell us a little bit more about that Senate inquiry and what listeners can do if they are passionate about the arts. How can they make a submission to uh, to express their concerns about the impact of Senator Brandis's uh, national program for excellence? Yeah, the Senate inquiry is incredible, actually, because um, it was something that was initiated through through the sector and led by um, NAVA and Arts Peak, in particular the peak body for national arts sector organisations. And it got passed through the Senate. Um, it made history when it passed through the Senate because it was the first time that um, all of the independent crossbench senators had supported um, Labor and the Greens to, to, to vote down or to get up a vote um, against the, the, the government. So something that's... Um, you know, strongly uniting all sides of politics, which was a really strong message going back. So the inquiry is open and for submissions to until the 17th of um, July, and people can make those applications directly online at the Parliament um, at the Senate website. But the connection through NAVA is great. They've got a fantastic little toolkit to help people um, put together a submission and, and respond to um, respond to the uh, the specific questions that are of the um, of the inquiry. Anyone who's already written a letter, and there's heaps and heaps of people who've already written letters and put them out, could use those letters to um, put in a, a, a submission to the inquiry because uh, the terms of reference will be relevant to all the things that they've raised in their letters. For people wondering what NAVA is, that's the National Association for the Visual Arts. You can go to their website, visualarts.net.au, and the front page features details about the call to action for all artists and arts organisations, uh, and you can 
find out more information there about how to make a submission to the Senate inquiry into the uh, impact uh, that Senator Brandis's reallocation of arts funding will have on the arts sector nationally. We've been speaking to Norm Horton. Norm, thanks very much for joining us today, especially at such short notice, and uh, my best wishes to everybody attending the Free the Arts National Sector Gathering in Sydney today. Thanks very much, Richard, and uh, it should be fun. All the best. Bye-bye. Smart Arts is the name of the program you're listening to. Uh, I'm taking you through until midday today. My next guests have joined me in the studio. From TBC Theatre, uh, we have uh, Miles Tankel and Damien Harrison, who are going to tell us about a play called Made in China. Gentlemen, how are you? Mm-hmm. Good. good. How are you? Good morning. Good, good, good. So um, now this is a play that doesn't really have a lot to do with China because it's set in Ireland and it's about gangsters, but I do understand there's a bit of kung fu involved. Quite a bit of kung fu yeah there's some great little fight scenes in there but the whole made in china thing is kind of the mm, sort of linchpin to the climax of the play so it's yeah. really cool not giving too much away of course yeah <laughs> of course no uh, we have we live in a spoiler phobic age i know um, right? so look i guess miles given that you're the fight choreographer for the show and also the assistant director mm-hmm. just maybe i'll get you to tell us just a little bit more about uh made in china it's by the irish playwright mark uh mark O'Roe, who people may know for howie the rookie that's great. which uh red stitch have staged very successfully a couple of times for mm. example um but he's also a screenwriter mm. um and he has a great ear for dialogue and and, and for character mm. um tell us a little bit more about the play and what the appeal is is for you and i guess also for the company as Yeah, great. Um, Well, the play itself um, is set in 90s Dublin, and it's about three men in a flat who are, through testing relationships um, and friendships uh, with really fast-paced, witty, explosive dialogue, we start to see a lot of elements about that world, which is also reflective of ours, I guess. I think the the main thing which drew us to it is that we were looking for a play that was male-heavy, as our previous play earlier was a female or female cast. So this one, with the type of dialogue that it is, as it is written so brilliantly, so cohesively, so tightly, um, with three men that we could explore all of those issues with, it was a really, really interesting choice for us. Fleur Murphy has been sitting on the the script for quite some time, and it's not one of his more well-known works. I believe it's a Victorian premiere, Mm -hmm. this one Mm -hmm. as well. Um, But, geez, it just cracks along. And that's the beautiful thing about it is that there's so much tension um, underneath the play and one of the things that drew us to it as well is the Irishness of it that we can have that really beautiful (laughs) jovial language which is at times really bass and harsh and at other times lyrical and flowing and at the same time is just remarkably humorous Um, and then it just kind of can switch at any moment and that element of it was really exciting for us so we thought well why not bring something like that into a very intimate Space, which is where we're at, Q44 on Swan Street, um, which is a space run by a theatre company, Q44, who have just finished their run of Fool for Love, um, which went brilliantly, I believe. But that space is really small and intimate, and we wanted to make it feel as though you were sitting in the lounge room of these characters, sitting along as they're drinking their tea and eating their crisps and having this massive fight at the end, which... You know, we believe we'll get everybody on the edge of their seats. It's going to be great. Damien, uh, as an actor, uh, how's your Irish accent? 
Uh, I believe it's pretty good. We've been working with Suze Haywood to sort of perfect the Dublin accent, but the, the thing about Dublin is it's sort of a step away from that generic Irish, if you know what I'm saying. Um, yeah, so it's it's been fun. Mm. Yeah, um, and you're playing one of three characters, mm. all uh, kind of Irish criminals. Uh, so uh, trying to get a, one of them. What's the the one of them? There's uh, Paddy, Kilby, and Huey. Yeah, uh, which two one of you? them are in the gang. I'm playing Paddy, which is he's kind of the naive, wanting to be a part of a gang. The the thing that really excites me about the play is that it's about three men who have. Uh, aspirations for bigger things in life whether it be love or career or just feeling connected with each other and their inability to sort of work through their feelings and work through uh, you know their inability to talk to one another and just say this is what I want and so hence betrayal comes through Mm-hmm. And anger, and yeah, and never mind the fact that like two of them are in the in the mob, in the Irish mob. So like, there's a whole bunch of other rules that are stacked on top of their world, which make it even harder for these men to even talk about what's going on for them. It's it's a surprisingly tremendous play. It just kind of, as I say, cracks along. <laughs> it really does just rip along at a tremendous pace. It's wonderful. In terms of the the, the intimacy of the space, mm-hmm. um, some actors might find that constrictive. Knowing that, you, does it mean that you can't do big gestures, big movements? Uh, that you, it, it forces you to, to try and underplay the drama a little. No, I don't think so. As long as the action's real and specific to the character, I think whatever you do is fine. It's you know you can be as big as you want in an intimate space because we are big in real life. It just sort of depends what you're going through and. These are really heightened emotions uh, throughout the play with really high stakes. So, you know, the bigger the better, I guess. It's just difficult to swing a bat in a very <laughs> yeah. intimate place. And we do swing a bat, a prosthetic leg, and an umbrella through the space. Uh, so, the Okay, I'm starting to think I'm not going to sit in the front row. <laughs> no, we work very carefully and very slowly um, to make sure that this fight scene is 100% safe for everybody involved, whether it be the audience and especially mm-hmm. the actors as well. However, we've worked it so that it does also look quite brutal at times. And... Um, Almost scary. We've we've had a few people in audiences uh, that we've had so far in rehearsals who have sat there covering their mouths or covering their eyes a little bit um, because of the way that we've made it to look. Um, and it, it does look pretty rugged, which is great. So you are the fight choreographer. How do you <laughs> approach staging uh, fights on stage? Because... Uh, having I've seen plenty of productions where you can clearly see that uh, depending on the angle that you're sitting at to the stage that the the fist is not connecting with the jaw and mm. it, it does break the the spell of the magic of the theater if you can clearly see that the punching and the brawling mm. is is fake yeah well look it's that that's the art of it I guess is making that seem so real that it you don't, your brain doesn't even disconnect from what's going on through there and, and those viewing angles as you say are ultimately very important because one small thing and as you say it can go out the window so we worked very slowly and um, with a lot of consideration as to what angles different audience members would be looking at and we staged it very specifically for that that being said there's a lot of movement around through furniture with the different weapons as well um, so there are various levels of difficulty that we had to kind of surmount as we were building it slowly 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 never mind the fact the space We've got like an L-shaped um, seating bank, so we've got um, audience on one side and the other side. So it's not truly in the round, but it's almost there. Um, yeah, it, 
added some challenges, but I think we've surmounted them. I feel very confident that we have. Damien, one of the other challenges is that this is, my understanding is, it's a very, very funny play as well as a very tense and masculine play. So trying to get that balance right to to get the the timing of the comedy right while keeping your accent up, while keeping the intensity of the... Yeah, there's a lot of layers going on there. And, like, the, the accent's you know, a big thing in itself and just the actual language because it's so thick and how Mark's written it is so, so very specific that the the comedy comes out of itself. So trying to play the comedy is kind of uh, a double-edged sword. But just, again, playing those intentions and being truthful to to each other in the circumstances, you know, that's where the comedy comes in. Mm. You know, the more we believe in how high these stakes are, the funnier it is. Mm. I think, I don't know, I haven't seen it. I'm just in it, so yeah, is it funny? I think it's very funny. <laughs> one of the things about comedy is often that it's best when it's uh, when it's underplayed, when it's mm. allowed to be natural mm. rather than forced. Mm. So I'm, I'm guessing then that's also something uh, as assistant director that you and the director are, uh, are very aware of as well, is keeping, the, the t- keeping this natural so it feels real or similar simultaneously feeling like a heightened kung fu comedy drama yeah yeah and 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 as damien has mentioned there are those elements where we have worked to bring up the stakes and if a particular character reacts in a particular way but it sits within the context of the play and the realms of where they should be playing it then there's no issue for it to be big and bold and anything like that but we haven't lost sight of the fact that it's still in a living room and it's still in a private space and we've worked to make sure that there are those elements available for our actors and for the audience as well but that's so irish as well to have huge stakes and just play it lightly you know like i'm gonna kill you but oh it's all fine it's yeah. all fine i'm gonna kill you later but you know yeah and it's, it's let's a, have a cup of tea it's hysterical <laughs> to watch there's parts within the fight scene where they like this it's explosive and the guys have just gone into this rage and then like oh, they stop to talk and the next thing like one's having like oh you should take some breath mints or you should do this you should do that and like it just breaks the tension but still keeps it rolling it's very cleverly cleverly written uh the play is made in china by mark o'rote running from the 8th until the 25th of july at q44 theater located on the first floor of 550 swan street in richmond tickets are just 30 bucks 25 dollars concession uh you can book and find out more information about the play and about the company presenting it at www.tbctheatre.com Miles and Damien, thanks very much for joining us here at Triple R. Thank you so much for having us. For many, many years on this long-running show, which uh, is now in its 11th decade, um, I've had a segment called Shoot the Messenger, uh, presented by... There have been three uh, presenters of that regular segment to date. Uh, It was a review segment, essentially, where we looked at what was going on in the world of theatre. We'd have a bit of a critical discussion about what was on, uh, and then maybe preview something else that was coming up. So, uh, since Rebecca Harkins-Cross unfortunately had to step down because she had so many other things on, we haven't had a Shoot the Messenger segment, but uh, joining us out uh, in the studio this morning. Fleur Kilpatrick joins us. Fleur is a, uh, a playwright, a director, uh, kind of writes about theatre and the sector at schoolforbirds.wordpress.com, uh, also podcasts, and uh, was a guest on the show in December last year for the 10th anniversary special. Hello, Fleur. Hi, Richard, and thanks so much for not introducing me as a reviewer. So many people do that. <laughs> well, I, I figure there's a difference between, because you're not a professional critic in that you're 
critiquing work and having reviews published in newspapers, etc. No. You, but because you're a theatre maker, having read the way you write about theatre, you, you write with real insight because you're from within the sector rather than outside it and observing. Yeah, and I try really deliberately to keep that distinction and to write as a maker as opposed to a critic. I, I love the privilege that I have of being able to just love theatre and come out just incredibly exciting, excited and I often see you guys when I come out and you guys are all already thinking about your what you have to say critically and I'm just like, I'm really happy I saw that. Um, the critical thought comes a bit later but I love that I have the that I have the luxury of just enjoying something in the moment and being excited. Well, I'm going to tap into that excitement that you have and get you to chat about oh, some some, uh, some stuff you've seen on the show and uh, then perhaps uh, critically to uh, to analyse it a little bit as well. But so I like that we can have this balance, kind of the theatre maker enthusing about work and then me the critic, kind of uh, kind of um, stepping back uh, perhaps and, and being yeah. slightly more cynical. What <laughs> what would you like to talk about? Where do we begin? What? what are you most excited about this week? Most excited i'm most excited about shit at mtc neon i'm afraid there's no way to have this conversation without swearing because the play is actually called shit um so sorry for anyone that doesn't uh like that that's a perfectly acceptable word but i i love the title for one thing i'll start with that i think patricia cornelius the playwright titles her plays wonderfully because it setting it up like that is this framework that invites the audience to go in and judge these people and says go on walk in, find them alien, find them unusual to be on this stage, distance yourself from them, and then hopefully ask why you have distanced yourself from someone that's only living a suburb away from you, from someone that's speaking in the same accent as you, that has actually grown up in the same society. This is a play about three women who are who have grown up through the foster system, for the most part, in and out of care, uh, and... It feels like a ballet of neglect at times. The physical stuff is just this beautiful, poetic uh, physicality of ravaged humanity um, that's so naturalistic and yet in the context of lights and in the context of music suddenly becomes incredibly dance-like and that goes for the words as well the physicality is the physical version of the words which are poetry which are metered and yet are naturalistic and gritty and sweary and dirty and rough one of the things i love about patricia cornelius as a playwright is that um she writes with such a poetic ear regardless of the the language that she's using and she is a poet of the vernacular absolutely uh, and uh, and of the everyday and as you say this is uh, a fascinating play in that uh, it places on stage uh, three damaged and angry young women who uh, as uh normally we would not see them on stage no. uh, and we would certainly not see them in such a sympathetic light they they might be placed on stage and laughed at or they might be placed on stage and made uh, uh, figures to fear the kind of uh, people that we would uh, move to a different train carriage or get off the bus to avoid mm. perhaps but here the Patricia humanises them so beautifully the strong performances uh, from the, the, the three actors yeah, as well Peter Brady, Sarah Ward and Nikki Wilkes, um, all absolutely outstanding and all from very different backgrounds as well. One's from theatre, one's from circus and one's from cabaret, I believe, and they've all come together and 
despite their different backgrounds, they, they create this incredibly unified us versus the world kind of front. But I think that's absolutely right. That there's a there's an element of invisibility to the work overall. This is like this, and and that hopefully the audience are left questioning why these people are so invisible when we do actually see them every day. Why poverty and neglect in this country is the kind that we walk past and don't notice as opposed to like England has this great tradition of the angry poor, the vocal poor that you can't possibly ignore the fist shaking poor and Australia doesn't have that. Australia's poor are the people that you I think that's because Australia cross the street to, to avoid. And I think it's because we like to pretend that we're a classless society. Yeah. Uh, and so being, we try to avoid the reality of knowing that there is an underclass mm. uh, uh, and so we, we don't put them on stages. So shit by... Uh, uh, Patricia Cornelius absolutely puts uh, some of those issues centre stage. Mm. It's a tight one-hour production. Uh, it is absolutely so fast. the highlight of this year's uh, MTC neon season of mm. independent theatre, directed by Susie D, who playwright Patricia Cornelius has, I think, a 30-something year working history with. Yeah. Um, and it They're just badass ladies just making amazing theatre, showing everyone else up just continuously year after year. They're outstanding. And the thing, one of the other things I loved about shit that I wanted to mention is the way it starts out as comedy um, and then slowly without any sense of there's no uh, feeling that you, you you can't hear the gears changing there's mm. nothing mechanical about the way it shifts tone but it does so successfully shift mood and tone from comedy to tragedy to violence to, to it's a really gripping and, and beautiful piece of work Absolutely. It uh, it closes so it closes Sunday. It's sold out except for they've just added in a uh, Saturday show, three o'clock. Which when I checked just before I left the house today, there was low availability for it. So I hope that everyone makes that sold out as well in the next 10 minutes. You absolutely should. mtc.com.au. Jump online and check out uh, uh, and try and book tickets for the final remaining performance that you can get tickets to Patricia Cornelius's shit uh, on, as we said, as part of the MTC neon season of independent theatre. Mm. Um so I'm also, I think overall there's amazing theatre happening at the moment. That's like, I'm, trying, I'm talking really fast to just try and cram in as much as I possibly can because there's amazing stuff happening. I'm really excited about Love and Information by Carol Churchill that's happening at Malt House at the moment. Oh, God, yes. <laughs> I, I had to cancel my tickets for opening night for this production because I was sick. And often when that happens, I get caught up in life and I get busy and I don't get to actually rebook tickets and get along. Mm. I did in this instance and I'm so glad. I did. This is the single most electrifying piece of theatre I have seen on an Australian main stage this year. Wow, that's a big call. That's fantastic. And look at your little face. You're so happy. <laughs> um, yeah, I think this, I know that multiple companies have tried to get the rights for this play for several years. It was, I think it was written around 2011, is my feeling. Um, and Carol Churchill as well as a playwright who has been around for, for years. I read her work as, you know, a 70s feminist playwright. And a lot of the people that came through in that, a lot of the people who were her um, peers at that time are now sort of out of date, old hat, forgotten playwrights. Patricia reinvents herself, not Patricia, Carol, <laughs> Carol reinvents herself with every play. And I remember in my undergrad picking up different scripts and being like, what? This is the same person as this other script? And again, if 
20-year-old Fleur had picked up love and information, I'd be, my mind would be similarly blown. It's very different from anything of hers. It feels, I had a friend describe it as Facebook for theatre. It's like, a lovely description. Yeah. It's one of the things that I find fascinating about this play. It, it's incredibly fragmented. Mm. If you haven't seen it, it could, reading about it, it, it could come across as dangerously postmodern, yeah. cold, uh, distant, yeah. uh, because it's a series of fragments about modern life and um, yeah. everyday people and everything from tiny short scenes that literally have two words of dialogue. Um, mm. But the human interaction uh, and the way we are bombarded with information constantly in this modern age and how you can blank out the white noise in order mm. to concentrate on the things that matter, such as love and the search for love. Yeah. Um, and this is over a 100 characters in multiple scenes. 50, 50 scenes of varying lengths, but mostly incredibly short. Disconnected scenes. There's no one character that comes back No at through any line. Point. Uh, and it's performed by just a handful. So this over a 100 characters performed by a handful of actors. Is it either six or eight? I can't remember. I think it's eight. I feel eight. That yes. sounds good. Yeah. Um, but, it, yeah, there's this sense... I think a lot of the time you hear writers or makers sort of complaining about the attention spans of contemporary audiences and how we've got like a Facebook length attention span now where if you click on it and you don't have instant gratification, you're not doing it. It feels in a way... Like Patricia, I'm going to keep saying that now because she's the first playwright I talked about today. Like Carol Churchill has embraced that concept and has gone, right, well, I'm not going to look at this as a negative. I'm going to show how an audience can find a story in a two-word scene. And they are. Some of those two-word scenes are some of my favourite moments in the play where you get an entire picture of a relationship just as someone places an order for a type of pasta in a restaurant. That's the only word said is just this pasta order. And your heart breaks for them as you watch this. It's beautifully directed. That's one of the things that struck me about it. Mm. Uh, it's uh, directed by Kip Williams, because this is a co-production between the Malthouse and the Sydney Theatre Company. Yeah. And Kip, I think, is uh, director, associate director at, at the STC. Don't quote me on that. I should have done my research. <laughs> um, but uh, it moves so beautifully. The mm. cast... Uh, are superb as well. They're such a, an intelligent and engaged group of diverse actors. Mm. That's one of the other things about it. Again, uh, um, the, 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 our theatres are often dominated by Anglo-Saxon actors. Mm. Uh, and so there's, um, a dis- I presume it's a conscious decision uh, to diversify that with the casting. Uh, but it feels mm. so natural because these characters are playing, these actors are playing multiple characters, multiple roles. Um, mm. The scenes are written without gender, for example, without specification of anything about the characters. It's just mm. the dialogue. So the actors are, are finding the truth in these scenes for themselves, uh, moving on and off stage with almost military precision, yeah. uh, changing costumes, rearranging the, the set. Um, it, it's just a superb work of theatre. I was, I gave it a solo standing ovation uh, at the end of the the, the session I went to because I thought it was so good. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think it's a massive vote of confidence from a playwright to write something like this, where you could say, "Do this." You could say, "I want." I'm, I was thinking of this when I wrote this. Uh, and she has got to the point where she goes, you know what, I trust these creatives. I'm going to write a one-word scene. I'm not going to say who says this one word. 
I'm going to give you 50 scenes that you can order pretty much as you want. I believe there's sort of three sections and you can order the plays within them and then there's another additional group of scenes that you can place wherever you want. So she gives the creatives a tremendous amount of trust, a tremendous amount of freedom and they and they really repay her for that with um, a remarkable production. It's beautiful. That one's going until uh, just this Saturday. So love well. and information at the Malthouse Theatre. Uh, uh, malthousetheatre.com.au ending this weekend the session I went to last weekend I, the theatre was only half full and I was outraged afterwards this should be sold Disgusting. out so absolutely go and book for love and information uh, it is a brilliant piece of theatre uh, look f- Fleur, we've raved about those two shows that are on at the moment. Anything coming up that you uh, yeah. want to kind of just uh, preview? Yeah, there's us? two things I'm very excited about. One is uh, another piece from MTC's Neon Festival, We Get It, by Elbow Room. Elbow Room have been around for a few years now and consistently make some of the most exciting, some of the most political theatre in the Melbourne independent theatre scene. Um, I'm really grateful to them for that, for that continued commitment to that and that continued commitment to exploring different forms, different mediums. I saw Marcel Dorney, one of their founders, create an amazing piece last year um, about sort of punk rock. Oh, prehistoric. Prehistoric. Yeah. Uh, Just remarkable work and to have this sort of this punk rock feel to it was just beautiful. So I'm really excited about that. Particularly as well, if you can book for it. So that is, that's running from, uh, previews on July 9th and opens on July 10th and runs through to the 19th. But if you can get to the Sunday, the 12th showing. At the end of that, there will be a post-show conversation with um, with Elbow Room and with Clementine Ford as well on feminism theatre um, in the era of, borrow- era of borrowed prestige. So that's uh, We Get It, uh, Elbow Room's show as part of the MTC Neon Festival of Independent Theatre. Uh, highly uh, recommended coming up uh, opening next week. And uh, yeah. just quickly, was one other work? Yeah, I have one other. I'm also really uh, looking forward to Dead Centre, which is Red Stitch. That's another a second collaboration with them. I think second, unless there's another one that I've forgotten. But Tom Holloway is the playwright, and this is a world premiere of his work. His last work that he made for Red Stitch, uh, Red Sky Morning, just absolutely blew Melbourne out of the water and has had multiple return seasons since then so I'm really excited to see what that combination of artists can do again it's being directed by Julian Merrick and has been dramaturged by him I have an awful lot of respect for Julian's dramaturgy and his commitment to Australian theatre um, and new Australian work so I think there's some amazing writing going on at the moment. New work coming up at Red Stitch, new work coming up uh, uh, as part of the Neon Season presented by Elbow Room shows to keep your eye on. Flurkill Patrick, thank you so much for joining Such us. A this pleasure. Morning. I've got to say, Richard, you didn't do a great job of being the cynic, though, in all of that. You were just well, no, I'm enthusing so enthusiastic away. about the work as well. So, uh, look, we'll have to go and see something that you love and I dislike. Just so we, can, uh, we can be slightly more cynical and, uh, and critical sure on air. But, look, it's hard to be cynical when there is such good work being presented on Melbourne stages at the moment. Absolutely. We didn't even mention it all, but there's amazing stuff going on. If you'd like to read some of Fleur Kilpatrick's writings about theatre, you can go to schoolforbirds.wordpress.com. Again, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much.
Smart Arts is the program you're tuned to. Richard Watts is my name, taking you through until midday today. It's been an action-packed morning so far. We've found out about the Brisbane Festival, about Polyglot Theatre's boats, about the National Day of Action for the Free the Arts campaign. We chatted to a couple of the guys from TBC Theatre about Made in China. And uh, Fleur Kilpatrick told us about some shows that are on or coming up that you should see. Something else that is happening is the Melbourne Festival of Puppetry. Now, puppetry is an art form that perhaps doesn't get as much as a look-in as other more kind of traditional forms of theatre, despite the fact that puppetry is a very traditional form of theatre indeed. Joining us from Lemony S. Puppet Theatre, its co-artistic director, Sarah Kriegler, who is the co-curator of the Melbourne Festival of Puppetry, which is also presented by La Mama Theatre. Sarah, hello. Hello, Richard. How are you going? I'm very well, very well indeed. Thank you. Uh, just before we go any further, because sure. I'm, I'm on the Committee of Management at La Mama, I need to do my traditional uh, declaration of a conflict of interest. Uh, as a committee member, I don't benefit financially from my involvement with La Mama, um, uh, so I have no qualms talking about what La Mama is getting up to. Marvellous. So, puppetry, what is it about the art form that so intrigues you? Um, what is it? Let me see. Well, there's so many things about the art form, actually. For me personally, what I love about the art form of puppetry is that it allows you to tell on stage stories that you can't tell um, easily using just actors. And um, the work that we in particular make, Lemony S Puppet Theatre, um, we're usually making works for adult puppet audiences but we sometimes make stuff for kids um and most of the time though those works um delving into some more complex i shouldn't say they're more complex than other theater works but they are um able to express metaphor three-dimensionally on stage and that is the kind of fascination that i have with puppetry and and why it's so useful to me as a theater maker i love that that notion of puppetry doing things that actors can't and that so it's certainly in terms of the imaginative scope of puppetry. You can blow puppets up, you can transport them to another planet, you can make them fly, you can do things with them, as you say, that you can do in the theatre, but it's a lot more complicated to make an actor fly. So much more complicated. It's very filmic. Puppetry can be very filmic on stage. It means you can actually um, create special effects really simply using this ancient technique of puppetry, which is deeply satisfying. How healthy is the puppetry sector in Australia? I would say it's like the quiet achiever of the theatre sector because most of the puppetry companies that are involved in this particular festival are small independent artists. They are working maybe, I don't know, six... um, well, sorry, I'm babbling a tiny bit because I'm, there's so many people. There's 11 different shows in the in the festival. But most of these people are independents. They usually don't have any funding. Um, they're usually working as a small business and they're usually on tour probably 40 weeks out of the year. They're off in tiny little community centres. They're in schools. They're um, in, ti- in smaller community festivals and things like that. They're always working. They're always out there. But it's not the kind of thing that you get to see 
um, in the theatres very often because most of them are making it so that they can easily tour it themselves and that's their livelihood. So in terms of the Melbourne Festival of Puppetry, was this an idea that you approached La Mama with? Did they approach you? How did did it work? I approached um, Liz Jones at La Mama because Liz has been a really fantastic supporter of puppetry for a long time and myself and Jacob Williams, who's the other half of Lemonier's Puppet Theatre, we've actually done quite a bit of puppetry at La Mama in the past because the venues are absolutely perfect for it because they're intimate, the audience are close, everything can be seen. You can make the smallest, beautiful, little detailed thing and it can be seen by everybody and that's why these venues are the perfect things for this festival and I and that's why I went to La Mama and said so you know I've got this idea and I think it could be beautiful and they went yeah you're absolutely right and that's why it's happening there. And so it's happening at La Mama Theatre in Faraday Street in Carlton in the theatre itself but also in a tent that's being erected in the courtyard. That could be a bit of a risk in chilly winter. Uh, We've actually done it before. We did a show there um, a few years ago called um, what was that one called now? The Rise and Fall of the Scarlet Street Theatre Episode 2. No, hang on. Oh, well, that was one of these crazy shows that we did. And we did it in... In a tent. tent. I saw it. Oh, you did. That's right. I remember, actually. Um, And, yes, it is a little bit risky, but it's waterproof and it's warm. It's beautiful, big theatre curtains. Keeps the warmth in. And once you get 14 people in there, it gets very snug very quickly. But that's not the only venue we've got. We've also got um, two shows that are happening in the forecourt of La Mama. So, you know, the beautiful uh, forecourt um, outside of the courtyard. We've got a purpose-built horse float where there's a work called Nightmare going on and it's a a nine-minute piece for seven audience members at a time and that's in the adult program. We also have um, a puppet booth piece called uh, Otto Learns to Fly and that's in the children's program and that's happening during the day in the forecourt. And we've also got the Courthouse Theatre. So it's actually across four venues. That's fantastic. Yeah, it's very exciting. Now, in terms of programming, uh, what were you looking for in terms of the works that you were presenting? We were most interested, and when I say we, I mean me and Liz Jones at La Mama, um, we were most interested in people who were really being quite innovative with the form of puppetry. So even though I do like the traditional Punch and Judy style stuff or black light theatre stuff, we were most interested in people who were doing things with the form that is really unexpected and that is certainly what you'll see in this work and um, and it's reflected by the people that um, have applied for the festival. There was people that we knew about and we knew their work and then there was a whole bunch of people that we'd never heard of and never seen their work because they've come from design backgrounds and circus backgrounds and all kinds of things. So we've got a real fantastic mix of innovative people and innovative works, for example. I mean, how can you not love a nine-minute show and a horse float for innovation? I mean, really. Nine minutes sounds perfect. Yeah, a short show is a good show. But, you know, that's not to say the longer shows are not fabulous as well, though. If people would like to know more about the La Mama uh, Festival, uh, sorry, the Melbourne Festival of Puppetry presented by La Mama Theatre and Lemony S Puppet Theatre, you can jump online, lamama.com.au. You'll find the full program there. We're chatting with Sarah Kriegler, who's the co-curator of the festival and co-artistic director of Lemony S Puppet Theatre. Was it a challenge to sort works into children's shows versus adult shows? And is there any overlap between them? Um, Not really, because people are making work for specific audiences. So we asked people to to declare, is your work for a children's audience or is it for an adult audience? And I suppose there are two overlaps, and one of them is um, 
called Inside the Walls, which is a work by Teresa O'Connor, and she oh, and their little company is called Salt and Pepper, Salt and Poppet Theatre. And Teresa is um, a current recipient of the State Library Creative Fellowships, and she's been developing a pop-up work. So it's basically a pop-up book that this story unfolds out of. And she developed this work using um, the State Library collection of pop-up books, and they've got a collection that dates back to the sort of early 1800s of these beautiful historic pop-up books, and that's where she's taken inspiration for this work. And that work actually is... um, ghost stories so it's kind of for 10 years and up so you kind of real that that would definitely be an overlap where you you could take an adolescent kid along and a couple of adults and i think you'd have a pretty great time the other one is nightmare which i already mentioned which is the one in the horse float that is also an overlap piece for older kids and um and adults it sounds like it's going to be a great festival. I think it's going to be really great. And I'm particularly excited about the adult program because in that program we've got some fantastic works. There's actually only four works, but I'm deeply excited by them because you don't get to see a lot of adult puppetry in Australia. You do in Europe. It's a very, very strong tradition. You've got entire festivals that are only adult works in Europe. But over here we don't get to see that very often and we've got some terrific ones. And I'd really like to mention... Um, Small Talk, which is by Lana Schwartz. And that uh, that work is so clever. It is just deeply satisfying. It's about what happens if your inner child gets out, right? And it is super clever and deeply entertaining. It's a solo work. She plays four characters, four different characters as an actor and four different puppets at the same time, and it's, it's really magnificent. I can't recommend that one enough. And the other one that is really terrific is Augustine's Circus Spectacular. And this is by a guy called um, Billy Paul, who's just moved to Melbourne from Sydney via Tonga from the UK. And he um, he's worked with some amazing circus companies and puppet companies in the UK and also established this um, theatre network in Tonga. And um, here's, this is the first time this work's ever been on in Melbourne. There's only 20 seats per show for Augustine's Circus Spectacular. So if you want to see that one, you absolutely have to book because it's already half sold out and we're more than a week away from him opening. So go down to that one. That's my advice. The Melbourne Festival of Puppetry is running from the 7th until the 12th July. And as you've heard Sarah say, there's a great range of work in both the children's program and the adults program. Uh, the venues are La Mama Theatre and La Mama Theatre Forecourt uh, the, and the La Mama Courthouse as well and the uh, the pop-up venues that are there, <laughs> including a horse float. So, uh, as we said, for more information about the Melbourne Festival of Puppetry, go to uh, the La Mama website, lamama.com.au, uh, and you can find out all the details about the uh, the shows in both the children's program and the adults program. Uh, perfectly timed for the school holidays, or for, uh, for an adult at any time, really. That's right, yes. Uh, I guess, look, just as a very final question for you, Sarah, before before I let you go, um, is this uh, is is it hoped that this will then become an annual event? It is hoped. We'll have to see how it goes this year. Um, but so far, we're all pretty excited, and I think the buzz around the industry is pretty exciting too. There's a lot of people who are saying, "Oh, this is a good thing. We haven't seen this for a while." 
And um, so we're really hoping that it will be, yes, definitely. I will keep my fingers crossed that it does. Melbourne Festival of Puppetry running from the 7th until the 12th of July. If you are a Triple R subscriber, uh, I've got... Two double passes to give away for Small Talk, which is part of the adult program, uh, on Thursday the 9th of July at 6.30pm. And I've got two double passes for Inside the Walls, part of the children's program for children 10 and older, on Friday the 10th of July at 11am. 93881027 is the number to call. Uh, and Sarah, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Richard, and we hope to see you there. My next guests join me in the studio. It's something of a of a mad morning, and so uh, I'm very very glad that uh, my next guests could have been patiently waiting. Uh, Joe Louis and Jamie Lewis join us in the studio now to talk about not one but two different works that are on at TheatreWorks: Letters Home, which is Joe's show, and Saltwater, which is Jamie's show. Both of these works exploring, would it be fair to say, the Singaporean-Australian experience? Or is that going to be... I wouldn't generalise it that broadly. can't say I speak for that. But definitely a personal experience of moving here and setting up shop and figuring out where life's taking me. Yes. I guess inevitably it's the Singaporean-Australian experience in that we are both from there. But... They're very different shows, and I feel like they talk about very different yeah. things yeah. and are very different views on that experience, maybe. So tell us about the the individual ideas and themes that your, your works are, ex, are experiencing. Uh, Joe, we'll start with you and sure. your work, Letters Home, which previewed last night uh, and is running through until the 12th of July. Correct. Uh, I think, for me, the work primarily is about... Uh, it questions identity and, and how much of that identity we get to choose for ourselves and how much of the people that we decide we are are really choices that we get to make versus uh, the products of the systems that we grew up in or the circumstances and contexts um, that we found and find ourselves in. Um, in that sense, it, it talks about my time in Singapore and my time here and and it, it works through the adjustment that I made over a period where I basically made a decision that precluded me ever returning back to Singapore. Uh, and it talks about that period in time and through that explores this notion of, uh, like I said, how we as people get to choose who we are. And, Jamie, your work, Saltwater, which is, again, it's a very personal work um, uh, and about family as well. Yeah, so I look at, I guess I look at my time here. Um, I came here to study and, and ended up getting married very quickly and stayed on. And and so I think um, as a kind of way to process, I, I've been thinking a lot about my mother and, and some of the things that she has taught me through the way she's been and through the things she's said. Um, I look at those things and realise how much it's kind of allowed me to make sense of setting up shop here and, and forging community, finding connections, understanding heartache and, you know, love and loss and all that sort of things. And and um, and so it is through those stories that I talk about 
the present and and it, it is in a form of a very convivial evening. You come and you prepare food with me, we sit around the table, we eat, we hang out, we chat. Um, it's all very conversational, yes. One of the things that immediately seems to be a common thread in both your works then is the notion of choice and how you choose what you want and what forces you to choose how you live. Mm-hmm. Mm. Have you watched one another's work and do do those kind of things resonate for you? We will tonight. We will tonight. So tonight we're seeing each other's work. But definitely that idea of choice is is so key Mm. uh, just with even with the conversations that we've been having with each other um, that it's clear that 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 concept of choice does run through both our works. I I actually explore that quite directly and I, I do talk quite at length about the concept of choice and how we know whether or not we have it or do we have it and um, I kind of even go into the science of it a bit as part of the direct address portions of my work yeah so science in yours and then that notion of sharing food yeah in your work which is, is something I've seen a bit in theatre over the last couple of years that to, to forging a personal connection with the audience uh, by by that shared experience and by adding something more tactile and uh, and sensory to the work That's as opposed right. to sensual. Yeah. But why is why preparing food? Why is, has, have you used that as an aspect of the work? Um, good, because I love to eat. <laughs> um, food is a big part of, of me and my family and, and, you know, Singaporeans, really. We, we love to eat. We have amazing food. Um, but I think there's just a lot of cultural things, traditional things, like in, in a Eurasian family, and there are certain dishes, and there are certain things that, to me, I feel like, as a, as a woman of my own household now, I've had to feel like I need to be able to make them. And so as a kind of ritual, I suppose, in transition. And, and um, so in exploring that for my personal, I guess, my own personal life, then that's kind of fed into the work of going... Yeah, this is my version. This is my household. This is me now, yeah. But embodying all this, you know, lessons from my mother and her mother and, yeah. So embodying the history that lies behind you. Yeah. Yeah. That notion of... um uh, embodying transition is something that I'm intrigued uh, about with your work, Joe. given that one of the things that you're exploring in the work is the decision not to return back to Singapore and not to complete national service. Yeah. So it's really as if there's been a... That transition has been very sharp, sharply drawn. In yeah, ab- absolutely. And, you know, if, for me, it feels like I didn't have a life before I first got here at 17, the streets that I grew up on, the people that I grew up with, all those memories of childhood for me exist as memories that I can never reaccess. And it's interesting to think about those streets that I grew up on and what they look like now and how different they must look in my memory. Um, for instance, I believe that there is a giant, like, three-building casino in a spot where... I used to take my high school girlfriend out to make out with because it was, you know, (laughs) deserted. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So you just you think about those things, and it's quite it's quite powerful 
what's in your head versus what you know reality to be. Yeah. Yeah. That notion of using memory and using theatre to, to mm. access places you can no longer visit uh, is an interesting one as well because it makes, obviously for you both, the, your works are very, very personal. Mm-hmm. But this, I find it so fascinating the way that something that can be so intimate and so personal can actually be more accessible for an audience than something quite general. Yeah. Uh, the specific becomes that point of connection for the audience. Yeah. Yeah, well, like I, I, I've often kind of described the work in in that sense as well. It's like you know, you you understand um, a relationship with your mother. You you would understand a relationship with your sister, your partner. Um, uh, yeah, and they've been partners to other people. They've been lovers and wives to other people, and so you understand those things. And that's all very universal, I think. You know, and even memory. You've moved out of your parents' home. You know, you've moved into state. You've moved. Uh, even from the country to the city, that that kind of departures, they're, they're a lot more normal than we know, we think, yeah. Now, the two works that uh, are being presented, uh, Joe's work, Letters Home, and Jamie's work, Saltwater, are both running concurrently at Theatre Works in St Kilda, uh, preview, both previewed last night, both having your opening night tonight, yep. uh, and running through until the 12th of July. Uh, so there's various different time options, so, which is going to be challenging because I, normally I would say, well, you can book for this at 7.30 and book for that at 9 o'clock. But, yeah. yeah. So you've got... Um, I'm just going to suggest that people go to the TheatreWorks website for, for more information as to how you can book for that. Uh, and, of course, I should have that written down in front of me. I do. TheatreWorks.org.au. That's uh, And you can book on 95343388. And it is possible to see the work as a double bill. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So and I, I recommend that, actually. Yeah. I think it's quite interesting. So I'm guessing each is a fairly tight, self-contained 50 minutes, one hour? Yeah. An hour, yeah. Yeah. So you can see see one show, go out into the foyer, have a coffee, have a glass of wine, go back into the theatre and get an entirely different take. Yeah. Exploring some similar themes and similar yeah. ideas. And remember, you get fed at salt water, so make it a double bill because it makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> so you don't have to kind of grab a quick bite to eat before no, you see you the don't. show. No, you don't, yeah. yeah. Um, in terms of presenting the work, at both these works at Theatre Works, tell us about the opportunity to, to have them place on that double bill together. Were you or- originally resistant to the idea because you wanted the works to stand alone or did, it, did you immediately think there's resonance here, there's connection this really will work as a, as a presentation. I think when, because I did my work originally in Perth and when it got, uh, when Dan said he'd program it and then it was like as part of a double bill, I think first of all I trust him to make mm. a reasonable decision as to why and how it was going to work so there was never really a point where I was like no, this is my thing and then, I mean, the more I read about Saltwater, the more I feel like it's actually really does work as a double bill, and I'm really happy with that decision. Yeah, me too. Um, I I was quite fortunate. I got selected as one of the selected works, and so it was all very exciting. It's my first solo project, to be honest. So it's it's a big deal in that sense. And but then when yeah when when I was told about the double bill, I was like, actually, that's great because it frames it for a first show. I think that's actually more beneficial for me as well. So. Yeah. yeah, and uh, congratulations to Dan Clark uh, at TheatreWorks uh, for programming these two balls. Yeah. yeah, and also uh, Dan, if you're listening, happy birth- happy birthday for yesterday. <laughs> so I got him a cake. Oh, oh, well, yeah, I saw the photo on Facebook. I baked yeah. a cake. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
one-upmanship in the studio. So, uh, if you would like to see Joe Louis' Letters Home at Theatreworks in Ackland Street, St Kilda, and Jamie Lewis's Saltwater, also at Theatreworks in St Kilda, both works are on now and running through until the 12th of July. You can book by going to theatreworks.org.au or by picking up the phone and calling 9534-3388. So, Letters Home is on at 5pm, 7pm and 8pm. Uh, and Saltwater is on at 3pm, 4pm, 7pm and 8.30pm. Uh, go to the website, check out the details. You'll find the time options for yourselves and book so that you can see both shows on a double bill. Sounds like it'll be a great combination. So, uh, Joe, Jamie, thanks very much for joining us. Thank, Thank you. you. My next guest for the morning joins me in the studio. Evelyn Crape is uh, an acclaimed Melbourne performer uh, and is presenting a one-woman show, More Female Parts, at Art Centre Melbourne in the Fairfax studio from the 30th of June until the 4th of July. Evelyn, welcome to Triple R. Thank you, Richard. Now, this is in some ways... Should, is it a, it's not quite a sequel to a work that you presented, Female Parts, several decades ago, but it's, it's, is it an advancement? of the themes of that early Well, it, yeah, it, it's referencing those early female parts in similar situations, but it is now 30 years on. I'm obviously a little older, not a lot. <laughs> and my, my nieces came last night and they said, you know, you look like you'd had Botox. And I said, really? Isn't that good about lighting? It's marvellous. Uh, kudos so, to your lighting designer. <laughs> I know, I must I, mu- I must get a lighting designer to follow me around at all times. <laughs> oh, I said to the girls, don't look too close. And then they were, they were looking in my face. Um, so it references those early ones, but obviously it is an older woman. However, having said that, what seems to me really interesting and perhaps ironic is that while one of them addresses a 60-year-old woman who's being forced to go into back into the workforce, husband's walked out on her, gone off with his secretary, she's not that unhappy about him leaving. What she is unhappy about is that she's got to go into Centrelink and start with New Start and all of that kind of world that women of all ages are facing, but particularly being older and knowing that you're going to have to interview up against much younger women with, you know, 20-page resumes of which you've got zilch. So that situation is comic and obviously um, about women, older women. The other two, however, are really uh, addressing women of all ages, even younger women. The second one, uh, which does mirror mirror one of the earlier ones is a woman trapped in her house only this time she's under surveillance it's really about the way in which technology is being used to control and manipulate and she is she's met husband on the internet he can watch her from his spy view which is a little window in the corner of his screen wherever he is and she's also got a robot assistant pal who is there as a presence, his voice. You hear his voice. So the second one, um, which also talks about a woman being trapped, which is what the earlier one in female parts did. However, now it's much more about technology and can this woman get out? 
does she want to get out? Because the the news bulletins that are coming through are about the violence against women in the streets. So it's a, it's, it's a terrible kind of dilemma for her. The world out there is is uh, frightening, and the world inside she can't breathe. She's suffocating. So can she get out? Does she want to? How? And that's two of the three monologues. What about the third? The last one is a fantasy, and um, it's a fairy tale, which, which was also... There was a fairy tale in the original. But this one is much more about the glass ceiling. Emily has dreams of becoming an economist. Can she make it? There's Graham, the garden gnome, with his fishing rod. Graham leads her to the plastic jungle. But once having got there... There isn't a a level playing field um, and the hobbyars are threatening to destroy Emily and her family life. The hobbyars make an entrance. So it's a really clever piece, uh, the last one, because just when you think it's a story about gender equality, it turns. Because Emily's older sister, Angelica, who's been home looking after the ageing parents, suddenly says to Emily, listen, you know, your turn? What about me? Come back. All I ever get from you, you know, is how awful your super important job is. Well, you know, mum needs help now. So just when you think that, you know, Emily is the heroine, Angelica suddenly makes a sort of... She rises from the ashes as a as a great sort of figure of um, retribution. What is it about monologues that intrigues you? Because obviously there's a, 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 an enormous amount of pressure on an actor performing a monologue. There's no other actors to kind of uh, to, to bounce off. Uh, you've, you've got all the lines, all the focus is on you. But they, that must be quite a challenge. But also I imagine there must be a, a great joy in being able to present these three different characters and the challenge that presents as well yeah it's true it's it's um what happens is that the audience in a way become the other actor in a way in which um they do if you're not playing the fourth wall of theater as well even if you've got other people on stage but certainly with a one woman piece that um flow between you and the audience becomes paramount and it doesn't mean that you literally uh talk to them although i do have a couple little occasions i did a show at the frankston art center where the audience actually started speaking the beginning of the fairy tale with me only they got a surprise when the ending was different to what they thought it was going to be. So there is a marvellous um, relationship that you develop because essentially that's what theatre is, I think. Um, the reason for doing um, monologues is multifold on a most prosaic level. It's, be, it, it's actually occurred because I couldn't get anybody else to give me any work. Basically, I was going to ask about that because yeah. it's it certainly it's the constant refrain that that comes out for women. Essentially, once women turn thirty, um, uh, in Hollywood, for example, it's kind of like right, well, no more roles for you until you're seventy-five, uh, and then you can start doing character parts. Uh, yeah. there's the, the invisibility of of older women is uh, an issue throughout society, whether it's standing at a bar waiting to be served and being ignored, or or uh, not being called by casting agents as well. Yes, well. I mean, I've always had that in a way. Partly, I think, um, being sort of boxed into having come from the pram factory, uh, being identified very strongly with a kind of theatre and 
then being actually told by a producer at the ABC, and I'm not lying, he said to me, go away and do some Chekhov and then we'll see what you're made of. As if, you know, what we were doing at the pram wasn't real theatre or it wasn't real acting. So I feel like I've been dogged a bit by that and um, so instead of succumbing, I've, I feel like what I've done with more female parts is say, oh, okay, you want me to be like this? I'll be more like this than ever. Now, instead of going off and doing Chekhov, I know you went off and did Beckett. You were in the, the Melbourne Festival back in, I think, 2008. Yes, yes, uh, we... And, and in fact, we went to Ireland. We took Beckett to Ireland, which to me was the biggest chutzpah of all. <laughs> Fancy the Australians turning up with Endgame <laughs> to Inniskillen. Re- how was it received? Well, very well. Because it was it was eleventh hour, uh, Will Henderson and Anne Thompson directing, Peter Houghton and David Tredinick playing Ham and Clove, and I remember one of the reviews in one of the um, the London papers coming out, and and we're in Ireland, but saying how what a physical uh, presence those two actors had in the way in which they delivered Beckett's lines and I thought well there you go you know we are known for that I think we are known for our kind of physical ability to uh, use language on stage uh, you know in in its truest physical sense which which I think is Shakespearean actually mm. so I think the Beckett wasn't that far away from Shakespeare so it was interesting for more female parts tell us about the physicality required for the different roles are you relying more on voice and on costume to convey the different characters are you adapting a very physical a, a very different physical stance for each of the three monologues they're hugely physical they're hugely physical and um uh, you know sometimes i wish i could just rely upon a bit of costume however that's not it is i'm just being facetious but but it is each piece has its own physical quality so um the joy of julie the first one who's going out she's she's actually practicing an interview with centrelink having lost her keys she's then got to relive what she's done the day before to try and work out where did she leave those keys? So you can imagine she's in this unit, she's surrounded by clutter and she's, she's on a marathon to try and find, run through the story of the day before, find the keys in order to get out of the house and get to the interview. So that's kind of, uh, her, her uh, robustness is physically expressed. Her desire to get out, find these keys, go and do this bloody job interview. So that's, that kind of physicality. The next one, Veronica, who's trapped in the penthouse, husband has set up a gym for her. I come out in, I think they're eight-inch pole dancing heels. I mean, it is a marvellous moment when the audience see these heels and go, what's she going to do? And um, I have actually, I feel quite proud of the fact that I can negotiate my way around the stage. So this is another kind of physicality. It's a physicality of um, using the gym to develop your skills physically so that she's a warrior. She is going to use these skills, hopefully, maybe, to get out, to get out and negotiate her way around the streets because, in fact, what you see is the shedding 
of what is quite um, a made-over woman into a street person. She's going to get out there and attack. So that's the warrior woman. Um, the fantasy is kind of a surreal... Uh, I just have a white sheet and I'm balletically as the d- director told me to do the other <laughs> night, balletically moving my way around the space. For, because for me, I guess theatre is really about how, do, you know, the process of creating theatre is about how to use your body, your mind, your emotions and your, and your comedy your, 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 to fuse them into a single thing that is absolutely complete that's for me what the rehearsal process is if you would like to see evelyn crape uh putting her body mind emotions and comic timing to great use more female parts is the production it's on now at art center melbourne in the fairfax studio uh, and uh, you can book tickets at artcentermelbourne.com.au and also find out more information about the production or you can call 1300 182 183 Evelyn, th- thank you so much for joining us Thank you Nick Casitas joins me in the studio. He's a, a full-time practising magician and is presenting work during the Melbourne Magic Festival, which is on now until the 11th of July. Nick, welcome to Triple R. Thanks for having me. How did you get into magic? A funny story, actually. Um, you probably wouldn't believe it if I told you, but I used to be a smoker. And then well, I wanted to quit smoking. So what I would do is I would carry a pack of cards where my cigarettes used to go. And whenever I felt a craving, I would pull up my cards and I would just dilly daddy and fool around uh within a year i ended up winning uh, a magic competition soon after that i basically got an agent and it just extrapolated from there um basically another year after that i was asked to be part of the melbourne magic festival and soon after that that very much helped me build my career as a magician and get some exposure and um here we are five years later and it's what i do full time to to pay my mortgage and make people smile. It's one of the most wonderful feelings uh, you can have as a person. That's pretty cool. Now, am I right in thinking that the brand of magic you do is uh, close-up magic? Indeed, as well as uh, close-up magic. Uh, my main line of work is being a corporate rover, is a rover around parties and so forth, but I also do stage performing and parlour shows as well, and soon to be uh, my illusion show. But mm. So break down for us the different kinds of of magic that there are to begin with sorry kids no it's not the hogwarts style uh there is no real transformation but the talk to us about the different classes of magic absolutely there's so many different facets of magic uh one of my personal favorites is the close-up magic because uh what i love about performing close-up magic is that you give your spectator the ability to actually experience the magic in their very hands and a lot of times they see the things on television and don't believe it's real. But when you have an opportunity to present it to them in their very hands, it's really, really exciting for them. Of course, there's also stage magic in which you can perform larger illusions and so forth and parlor pieces in which you can perform for much larger audiences. And then, of course, it then goes into the grand illusions, which you see like in the illusionist shows and so forth, where they'll take somebody and saw them in half or so forth, or they'll vanish from one entity of the, of the room and end up at the very back of the room and so forth. Now... I remember having a discussion a a year or two ago uh, with people asking whether magic was an art or whether it's a craft. Is it something that... Is it it truly a form of artistic expression or is it just 
rote practice and learning until you get the craft right? Well, it's a mixture of both, I'm going to say, because sadly um, it's not considered an art form by government format. So um, that being said, the Melbourne Magic Festival is entirely self-funded, for example. Whereas a lot of other dancing projects and so forth that you might have seen in the past, um, they actually are able to get government grants and so forth. The Melbourne Magic Festival never has been able to do that because magic isn't considered an art form, although myself as a performer, I do consider it art. Well, because it's very much a form of theatre because it's not just about the presentation, it's about getting the lighting right, it's the music, it's it's all of those different elements of different art forms combining into a magic show. Absolutely, and a lot of times, you know, the um, magicians just, you know, my favourite style of magic when performing it is, is the storytelling, much like you would do with any, any theatre, and it's wonderful when you can actually use the magic to help accentuate your story and really help drive it home. You can see these beautiful pieces in which you, know, you, you perform a piece of magic that's very personal and you see it bring tears to your audience, and that's really something special. And I think that only you as an artist would be able to achieve something like that, not just some sort of like conjurer in which you just do cheap, bought-out-of-the-store tricks and so forth. I think that is what separates you from the craft, from an artist. Now, that notion of the storytelling aspect of of contemporary magic shows, I get the impression from people that that's very much an Australian style of magic as well, unlike the international magician style tends to be much more still trick-based as opposed to the the narrative and the story and and that storytelling aspect of the work. It certainly can be, absolutely, but it's... um, Doing magic is, is one thing and like knowing how, you know, how the trick works, but knowing why it works is a separate entity. Why it works. And, and that's basically getting your audience to be able to care. And that's where your storytelling, I feel the storytelling really, really helps because you can actually have your audience care and they can connect with you as an artist. Now, the show that Nick is doing at this year's Melbourne Magic Festival is called Still One Lonely Guy, a sequel to uh, One Lonely Guy <laughs> in the earlier shows. Tell us a little bit about the show and what people can expect when they come along to see it. Absolutely. Well, I wanted to basically um, expose uh, magicians for what we really are. And uh, a lot of people think that we're uh, very suave, debonair, handsome fellas that get all the girls and have lions, tigers and bears and so forth. But magicians, for the most part, are very, very lonely guys. We basically are the folks that would stay home and we would practice our car tricks, lock ourselves in our rooms and practice and practice and practice and my show sort of brings that to light in the most honest way. And, and it's great because I can speak from experience as to exactly what it is like being a magician. How many other shows are there in the Melbourne Magic Festival? Well, this year it's it's absolutely um, phenomenal. We have uh, 180 performances with 46 different shows, which has been absolutely amazing when you look at um, where it's come from because the Melbourne Magic Festival started back in 2008. And back in 2008, there was only uh, 58 performances. And then in that space of time, it's then grown to the state where it is now, where we have 180 performances. That's pretty big. That's a lot of growth over over just eight years. It's wonderful, and it gets bigger and better every single year. And this year has been the most exciting for everyone, where we have it now a magic hub and where people can actually hang out, and magicians will just get together in this one room and we'll jam and just hang out with the public. It's absolutely wonderful. There's magic stores set up there for the Magic Universe stand. It's absolutely wonderful. It's been the best fun this year that it has ever been. Uh, So the festival kicked off on uh, the 29th of June Mm -hmm. and is running through until the 11th of July and it's all happening at Northcote Town Hall. So you've taken over like half the the Northcote Town Hall or something. We've taken over the entire building. It is ours. (laughs) I'm expecting it's going to disappear then uh, by the end of the the festival. Um, And you've also got international guests this year. Indeed we do. Um, Currently we have the amazing Rob Zabrecki. Um, He was someone that I've, I've been a very big fan of and seen 
seen some of his online lectures. He's 20 times cooler in person than, uh, than I w- what I imagined seeing him uh, you know, on, on the TV and so forth. And then on top of that, we're expecting uh, the amazing Pop Hayden, who um, both magicians are actually uh, magicians have won the award Magician of the Year at the um, Magic Castle in LA. So, what do you have to do to win an award like that? You just have to be an exceptional magician, and it's exactly what these two performers are. Exceptional in what terms? In terms of every single aspect of the craft, presentation, practice, uniqueness of the trick. Exactly right. It is. They're just an absolute pleasure to watch, and uh, unlike anything I've seen before, they're just a must see. And I implore you all to come down and scope it out. The Melbourne Magic Festival at Northcote Town Hall, as we said on now until the 11th of July. Over 250 shows and free events as well. Um, I guess, look, Nick, if, if you were to recommend, say, one or two other shows apart from your own... Of course. Obviously, people should come and see your show, Still One Lonely Guy, which is running through until this Saturday, the 4th of July. Indeed. But uh, who else should people come to see? Well, the beauty of it is that it's for it, it covers all spectrums. For example, if you have children, please come and see Tricky Nick and the Amazing Machine, as well as Tim Ellis in his show uh, The Amazing Hatter. Um, sorry, The Mad Hatter, my apologies. Um, if you want to see some great adult shows, Simon Coronel is doing a fantastic show called Glitches in Reality. Um, as well as that, they have Rob Zabrecki's show, Pop Hayden's show. Um, all you need, really need to do is just jump online, look up melbournemagicfestival.com, and there is an entire array to ensure that every single person of all ages has a great time at this festival. There's even the Magicians International Poker Tournament in which cheating is allowed. It is. As long as you don't get caught. (laughs) So uh, lots of people palming cards and more. Melbourne Magic Festival on now until the 11th of July. More info at melbournemagicfestival.com. It's happening at Northcote Town Hall on top of Rutgers Hill. Uh, The tram stops right out the front and uh, I'm sure you can find parking in the area or you could just walk there if you're a local. Nick Casitas, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm joined now in the studio, my final guests for the morning, the 10th segment of this morning's jam-packed show. <laughs> Normally, they uh, join me at 11.30, but uh, running a little bit late, Joe Lloyd and Gerard Van Dyke join us for our Dancing on the Radio segment. Hello to you both. Hello, Richard. I'm going to let you guys talk while I just catch my breath. Go sure, on. It's take been a breather. busy morning. <laughs> What's going on in the dance world, Joe? Uh, we're revving up for a couple of good shows by some, I guess you'd call them emerging artists. Um, we've got James Batchelor opening his show at 45 Down downstairs this evening and i'll be there checking that out meta systems it's called um now james has a bit of a thing for science fiction it seems judging from and, the show and he sort of like heavy bricks <laughs> in this yes. work yes there's um there's a number of uh like ceramic bricks on stage and um an extension very much of his kia choreographic award work i'm, I'm led to believe yes but, um well for the kia work yes there were those big uh, really heavy blocks of, yep. of uh, being moved. Uh, I, I was just worried about the floor at Dance House. I was every, a little too. But every time they were the and, and their backs down <laughs> and their backs. Yeah, I know. Um, look, uh, this uh, I've said this before. Um, I was very impressed with James Batchelor's um, work presented at Dance House last year called Island, um, which he won a got a green room nod for. Nod for. Yeah. Yep. 
um, and uh, the it, it's um, I think that he's a really interesting young artist. Again, yes, he's emerging as a maker. Um, he's like 21 or 22 or something, um, yeah. and he's got some um, uh, some great vision. I think. Yeah, and I think the choice of 45 downstairs is pretty great because it's his aesthetic is going to sit quite interestingly there. I think, as opposed to say um, a more studio style space like arts house, uh, dance house. So I'm excited. In terms of presenting dance at 45 downstairs, have either I know Jez, mm. you've put, work, presented work in the venue. Joe, have you? I've I'm, been in works there, but I haven't presented my work there. Because I'm just thinking about what challenges that space presents for dance, given that there's a couple of pillars in the middle of the room. Do you incorporate yeah. those into shows? Do you use those to frame work? Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, you know, do. that's a great way of doing it, you know. Um, I've, uh, um, uh, full disclosure, I'm presenting my solo picnic there, um, middle August and uh, I've been contemplating using one of the pillars but maybe not uh, so it's actually you know it lends itself to an imagining a new sort of and it's kind of this thing. great thing of it's buried sort of down underneath mm, Melbourne and you can feel like you're you know somewhere else it's, it's a basement special. it is yeah. and, and really it's not a it's not actually a theatre well not, it wasn't built to be a theatre it was um, uh, who knows what it was really maybe but a factory or something yeah yeah of some sort but um, it, you, you know, when you go in on Flinders Lane you go down a couple of flights to get to the theatre and then you're out on the back of um, uh, Flinders Street um, so it uh, you, you feel like you're going underground but then there's natural light in the in the actual theatre. Yeah, it's beautiful. Um, yeah. What else is coming up? Uh, Sarah Aiken, who you, I think, mentioned last time on the program. Mm. She's got a program coming up at Dance House, and it's called Set. And she, similarly to James, has sort of stuck with um, exploring these objects in their work. And for her, she um, she did a solo as part of Lucy Guerin's Pieces for Small Spaces a couple of years ago now. Yep. And then she was part of the Key Choreographic Award um, process. And she stuck with these large, like extremely large set objects. And she's quite small, but she does these very particular... Um, organisations and interactions with these objects. and It's almost character-driven. Did you see the work at Pieces from Small Spaces? Yeah, there's humour definitely to it, and it's subtle, but, um, yeah, she's got a real exquisite presence, I think, and um, I'm interested in this one because I think she's involved other people or she's exploring perhaps, you know, maybe the audience. Mm. I'm not sure, but um, it'll be interesting to see her move beyond the solo aspect of her work if, if that's the case. If she has other people on stage, yes. Um, yeah, I'm really excited to see this. I think she's got a great sense of humour. It's very dry. Yeah. Uh, but um, uh, the, the, the I keep thinking back to the work at uh, Lucy Guerin's Pieces for Small Spaces where she had really, really long cardboard tubes that would, had obviously had material wrapped up on them once upon a time. Um, she had her limbs all stuck in those and, you know, found it incredibly hard to move. But you saw this. It was... It, you saw an alien, like walking for the first time or something. It was beautiful. It was really yeah. uh, engaging. So that's going to be on July 22, it begins. Mm. So that's at set at Dance House. Dance House. Yeah. Dancehouse.org.au is the website? I <laughs> Here I'm check. struggling. I'm looking at the Facebook page, actually, um, so you'll find it there. Okay. Um, <clears throat> Apologies, Dan Charles, if I just got your URL wrong on it. <laughs> um, there's one other thing I wanted to mention, Richard, um, that uh, I strongly encourage Sydney-bound Sydney people to go to, um, Carriage Works. Which um, is you're going to talk about 24 frames? Yeah, 24 yeah. frames per second. second. Yeah, yeah. I was. Uh, this looks 
awesome, and I wish I was in Sydney to see it. It's a collaboration between dance and film, is that right? Or dance yes. and visual art? Yep, yep. Uh, it's, it's a film project more than anything else is what I'm led to believe. Yeah, and I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if maybe parts of, of the works that are up there come down to Melbourne eventually, but... You know, so. there's there's incredible dance artists involved. Um, Anthony Hamilton and Byron Perry have worked on a piece, and Nat Curzio's worked with Daniel Crooks to create a work involving Don Asker, who's um, a mentor, really, yeah, of ours. Yeah. He, he he was someone we went through VCA with, and he's uh, an incredible performer and artist himself. So he's been he's been residing over um, uh, on the um, east coast of Victoria, uh, like you know, eight hours drive away from Melbourne, um, on a farm and 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 you know, raising cattle, etc. Yeah, and birthing calves. And yeah, <laughs> and, and so Nat and Dan, Daniel went over there. Uh, have been spending the last couple of summers, I'm led to believe, um, shooting him and rehearsing it. Um, and uh, I've had if you if you go to uh, carriageworks.com.au and look for twenty four frames per second and then have a look at the trailer you'll see moments of really warped out um figures um and that's that's that work in particular that's daniel <laughs> yes uh it looks it looks fascinating so uh carriage works 24 frames per second um is the name of the project so if you're in sydney or heading up to sydney one to check out now speaking of projects the uh the draft guidelines for the new national program for excellence in the arts dreadful title mm. were presented last night uh Obviously, this I talked earlier in the show with Norm Horton from uh, one of the spokespeople for, for the Free the Arts campaign about the National Day of Action that's happening today in response to the reallocation of funding from the Australia Council to this National Program for Excellence in the Arts. Have you had a chance to look at the draft program and how, what impact do you think this is going to have on the dance sector? Oh, yeah, I, I skimmed across it and, you know, it was a familiar set of guidelines in some ways. There was a couple of things in there that um, were a little bit obscure. But, um, yeah, it, it it's going to be very interesting to see how it plays out. Pretty much everyone's in the same basket, you know, um, whether you're a small to medium company or you're completely independent as I am. Mm. So... Um, Richard, can you remember how much uh, Brandis took from the Osco? I believe it's $104.8 million okay. over three years. Okay. so four years. Right. But okay. it's a significant amount of money, and it comes specifically from monies that would have been earmarked for the small to medium sector Correct. and independent artists. The new guidelines for the National Program for Excellence in the Arts specifically state that individuals cannot apply, and um, <clears throat> and that it's a, it's approximately twenty million per financial year is what the program will be um, uh, allocating. So, um, and uh, strangely, they go on to say immediately straight after that it will be demand driven, allowing it to be responsive. Uh, however. Um, if they're talking twenty million, I think that's like one project a year or something. You know, it's nuts. Well, it, it could be I don't know. Let's see, ten million dollars for Opera Australia to mount more regional tours. It's one movie. It's one film project. You know, yeah, a way. Mm. yeah. or uh, maybe a, a couple of 
major other major performing arts organizations to tour internationally so a couple of major theater companies or major orchestras to tour uh, it's not going to go very far with no. uh, and uh, it could be much better used creating new work by dancers such as yourselves visual artists uh, i'd like to cross so. disciplinary artists one thing that caught my eye um was um under the cat under the thing what the program will not fund the very last point uh listed here Projects or components of projects that are also funded by other programs administered by the Ministry for the Arts. What I'd like to question is, does that mean anything that's funded by the Australia Council? In which case, anything that's funded by the Australia Council cannot be funded by the NPEA. Which just, you know, God, what a competition. It's going to be interesting. These are draft guidelines. They are currently open for discussion. Mm. Uh, and if you have you got the URL open um, for I the can, Ministry of the it. Arts website? That would be great uh, because people... Oh, actually, don't worry. I've, I've got it open here because handily, if you go to artshub.com.au, mm. I have a, an article that I whipped up last night about the new guidelines, but you can go to arts.gov.au and download a copy of the draft guidelines for the new national program for excellence in the arts. Uh, feedback on these guidelines needs to be provided by 5pm uh, Australian Eastern Standard Time on the 31st of July. Get cracking. Get cracking. We should better wrap it up there, guys, because uh, Chris Gill is champing the bit out in the green room. He's going to be funking up the airwaves in a couple of minutes' time. Woo-hoo. Joe and Jez, good to see you both. You Excellent Sorry, to see you. Sorry, a, a slightly shortened dancing on the radio this fortnight. Short works. Dance. Uh, I think short works are good. Yeah. Yeah. There's a stock cube. Well, <laughs> see you uh, both in, hopefully in a fortnight's time to talk about dance in a bit more detail. Going to leave you with a track by Halqua. Um, the single Her, uh, Halka, are playing at the Gasometer this Friday, the 3rd of July, with Mike Walters and I, a man, solo from 8pm till 11pm. If you're a Triple R subscriber and would like to get along to see Halka, I've got one double pass to give away, 93881027. Uh, Going to play you the single Her, and I'll catch you next week. Chris Gill coming up in just a moment. Thank you for listening to the Smart Arts Podcast. You can listen to Smart Arts every Thursday morning from 9am to 12pm here on Triple R. This podcast was produced by Nabila Petrucci.